chapter 4. book of James is an amazing book. I preached through this book a few years ago. We went through it. A book that deals with integrity in our walk, uh, written by the Lord's half-brother, James. That's the James. This is not dealing with the Peter, James, and John did not write this. He he was actually executed by the time this book was written. But this is James, the half-brother of the Lord, who became the pastor at the church in Jerusalem, the very first church. And this is before the beginning of Paul's uh, ministry taking off. Um, but anyhow, James chapter 4 has something, boy, that w- w- certainly can help us in those first couple of verses. Let's look at the first three verses of James chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask, uh, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do need you this morning. I beg you for your help, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray that your word would be a help to your people, that it would draw us closer to you. Lord, you know the need of each and every heart that is in here. Lord, you know those who still really need to be truly converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing on their heart that even this morning they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who know you, please use this to strengthen us, to help us, to encourage us. Again, that when we leave here, we can be closer to you. Lord, help us stay focused on you and your word this morning. Please bless God what I say and how I say it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, actually a little denomination in Canada. True story. This is, this is true. It's interesting how this denomination got started. The pastor was preaching, and he was getting all worked up. It was uh, more, uh, more along the lines, if I remember right, uh, along a charismatic line. He's getting all worked up. And while he was moving around, getting all worked up, preaching, his tie literally got tangled up in his hand. And he got all mad and frustrated, and he ripped his tie off. This is going to lead to the start of a denomination. Not kidding. He ripped his tie off, threw it down, and started stomping on it. And he started proclaiming that what had just happened was the devil trying to bind his preaching. From that point on, he began to preach that ties were of the devil. He might be half right. I'm not sure about that. But he did. He began to preach ties were of the devil. Well, his congregation thought, a significant portion thought he was a little bit absurd. And so quarrels broke out over this issue of ties and the devil. It led to a church split. It led to a church split. And that began this new denomination called, his last name was Horn, like Hornites or something like that is what they became known as. And you won't find a tie in their church. But it started with something so simple and turned into this strife and this quarreling and led to division. You know, I've, I've told the story before how in the, of the two works there in New Guinea when I was there in the village of Sohon and Kudukudu, the work in Sohon almost completely split over a pair of flip-flops. A little pair of shoes. Almost split it because of two mothers fighting over who the shoes actually belonged to. To the point was they had to come get me and intervene and have a service to deal with those flip-flops. 
when I was on debutation, um, I was reading on missions, and at the time, I think it was an article written by Don Sisk, he was head of BIMI at the time, and uh, he, was, he was dealing with several different issues, and, and one of the issues he dealt with in this article that he had written was why their missionaries come off the field. And by far, the number one reason wasn't medical, um, anything like that. The number one reason by a certain significant percentage was missionaries not getting along with other missionaries. Leading one of them to leave the field. Strife. Conflict. Of course, it's not just the mission field. It's in, in our churches, but it's also, of course, our homes. Husbands and wives, they constantly argue, can hardly speak well at all, or parents and children. Many times they like to put on the Christian face and then come to church, but always at odds with each other. And let's face it, look at our culture right now. It is filled with strife. Just dominates and controls. There's a lack of any peace, a lack of contentment. And our text starts off with a really important question. Where do all these fightings and wars come from? What is beginning? What's causing all this strife? All this conflict? Why is there all this strife in your life? Why is it that it seems everywhere you go, there seems to be strife and conflict? Many people will say, well, if I would just get all these ignorant people out of my life, I wouldn't have any. You're looking the wrong direction. You're looking the wrong direction. Many times when we do try and solve these problems on a personal level, too often we go the wrong way. We think the solution is fixing others. I don't know how many times I have to deal with that, where it's always somebody trying to get the person to deal with self, but it's always others. It's always others. We think if I can just get these people to change, I'm going to be good. You're looking the wrong direction to fix the problem. According to our text, as we're going to see, it starts by looking within for the source of our strife. See, the problem is not others. The problem lies within your own heart. Many times, even in counseling with relationships that are in trouble, whatever aspect those relationships are, the key is always for me to get the people to look within, to go to the mirror, to begin to see self for who you are. Again, literally, this isn't, this isn't even, I'm not being sarcastic when I say this. At times when I was in New Guinea and that island in New Ireland, in those villages, and I begin to teach on home, I would, I, would, I would have the husbands, they love the verse, I'm not kidding, it's like all men do, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And there's times I literally would have them dragging their wife to me. I remember, I, I mentioned before I was coming out of my car, a, a, a husband had his wife in the church, holding her by the arm, and I pulled up, said, what's going on? And said, we're coming to see you. She won't submit. And I said, I don't need to talk with her, I just need to talk with you. The problem causing the conflict was not their wife not submitting. It was their own lustful, selfish, self-centered heart. The reason many times you have anger and strife and warring is not due to someone else. 
It's what's taking place in your own soul and in your own heart that's leading to the conflict with others in your life. Many times you can see that. There's different ways you can examine that. Let's say there's somebody you've constantly been fighting with and bickering with and they apologize. But what you'll soon discover, maybe in a matter of days, weeks, months, minutes, I don't know, it's not enough. That apology isn't enough. Because the real problem, as you're going to see from our text, is not the other person. It's your own heart. Our text answers the question why we have these relationship problems, why there's strife and wars taking place. Not on a literal level with wars here, but within our relationships with each other, those around us. Why all the conflict? Why all the strife? We see the problem he gives us here is threefold. Number one, it's a problem of war within ourselves led by uncontrolled lust. Number two, we're going to see it's also led by unfulfilled desires. And number three, a heart that is not truly seeking after God. And that's what we're going to develop this morning. I want you to see that because I'm telling you, it will help you and it will change your life when you get this thing right. When you begin to recognize what the real problem is, because you're trying to fix it at the wrong source. It's not getting the others to change, it's getting you to change. So first, we're going to start off with how conflict and strife begins where there's a war within your own soul led by uncontrolled lust. Look at verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? There's a war within, according to this verse, within our own soul. That leads to this conflict. This is one of, again, this is one of three points Paul or James is making here that leads to this strife in our life. That leads to the constant conflict, the lack of peace, the lack of contentment. And he says, within this war, there's this uncontrolled lust. The war rages as you feel guilt, and yet you seek to feed this pleasure and this lust. That's where the war is. Your lust is getting out of control and yet you have the guilt of your own conscience and this war rages. Listen to me. You need to listen to the guilt. It's there for a reason. We're being taught by this modern day culture that there are certain emotions that are bad. The emotions that we have are given by God. They are. They have a reason. Guilt and shame have a reason. So the conflict arises, you feel the guilt, but the uncontrolled lust is in such a place in your life. There's just a conflict, and the lust begins to win over and over. Guilt to your conscience is like pain to the body. Pain lets the body, uh, when you're in pain, physical pain with something, it's telling you, stop doing what you're doing. Stop. It's too much. Well, that guilt is telling your soul, stop. It's too much. So if you're going to resolve conflict in your life, the key is not to rage war with others. It's to rage that war within. 
the war that's going on with your soul. Look at 1 Peter. Flip over probably a page or two is all in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Now, notice where he goes with this. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. He's saying, listen, be careful there. Having your soul at war can be a miserable place to be. There'll be that lack of contentment, that lack of peace, a discontentment in your life. Strife will be around. And it affects your relationship with others when this takes place. It does. Let me give a simple example. And this is in an everyday where I had to live in this state. But I remember one day, Levi was much smaller, several years ago. And I I just gotten some news, some things taking place in the church, and it was distressing. It was bothering me, and I'm trying to think how to how to work through this. My mind is racing and running. And Levi comes into the house with this rubber ball. I'm just sitting on the couch by myself, and he starts bouncing the ball. Boom, 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 boom. Just bouncing the ball over and over and over. Just bouncing the ball. And prior to this phone call I got, we were we were actually playing and having fun. Now I got the call, I'm sitting down, my mind's running on this issue, what do I need to do, it's, it's, it's there, he's bouncing the ball, ding, 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 and I snapped at him. My problem had nothing to do with Levi or that ball. The problem was the war within at that moment. You see, when that war within begins to take place and you're not handling it right, when, you're, when, when you have the focus on the wrong enemy, you take that conflict out on others. Around you. What feeds this war? At the heart of a conflict and the strife that I'm talking about, listen, what feeds it is two different sins. Selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride are the ammunition that it needs. These are what give power to lust. It is... The explosive material in that missile. Selfishness is controlling when lust is warring and winning against your soul. We live in a culture that, and we can see, I mean, mean just, all you have to do is try and step back and look at it objectively, what's taking place in our culture. Starting going back to the 1950s, you, you saw a foundation being put in place in our country, and we are reaping it right now what has been sown. We saw a foundation beginning to be laid after World War II about making life more about self. It got much stronger in the 60s. A philosophy was beginning to take hold by then, that life is about you. We began to see it in our advertising campaigns coming into the 70s and into the 80s. Being bombarded. You deserve this. It's about you. So we have a generation that has risen that believes that. They believe life is about self. And we're filled with conflict. This is never a way to happiness. 
You think about this. How many selfish children have genuine toddlers, I'm talking to, that two and three years old, which they all have this. But you think of one who, maybe I've had five kids. Think of maybe one of your children that struggled with selfishness. That'll be the one child you had that struggled with happiness. Because what will happen? They'll be crying, give me that toy. They'll be crying, throwing the fit, give me that toy, give me that toy. You can see the selfishness there, and you feed it, you give the toy. And they're, hmm. Give it ten minutes. What happens? They want something else. Because it's never, that desire is never fulfilled. The eye is never satisfied. That lust that they're trying to find a meaning, if you will, a purpose, if you will, is not going to be filled. All of a sudden, it's craving something else. Then you become an adult. And you're still seeking a means of the world to satisfy a genuine spiritual desire, the very reason why you were created, but you're going to the wrong source. When it's not fulfilled, conflict arises. We were not created by God to live for self. Therefore, you'll never find that measure of contentment with it. We were created to glorify God with our life. We even had this in our churches come in. I mean, it began to dominate in the 70s and the 80s. How all of a sudden, the the motivation behind ministry became ambition. Ambition to be the greatest. Ambition to have the largest. Little did we, we didn't even recognize. We had selfishness and pride in control. And we're going to see, just like in our text at the last point, it gets masked in spirituality. The word for lust here in verse 1 is the same Greek word that we use to derive our English word, hedonist, pleasure seeker. So that's what this word is dealing with, a pleasure seeker. Again, your life isn't about glorifying God. Selfishness is in control. It's about pleasure. Of course, we live in a time and in a culture where we are lovers of pleasure much more so than we are lovers of God. This pleasure-driven culture is proof. It's the evidence that our heart is controlled by lust. Is it not in our churches? Do we not have churches now that are basing how they, quote, worship God on pleasure? And not on principle. Oh, will you do? It's exactly what's taking place. It's about feeding the entertainment. About feeding the pleasure. Because that's what's in control. Our problem in our culture, truly it's not racism, it's not politics, it's not education. It's a problem of the heart. We can see all the strife and the fighting and the hatred Just selfishness dominating. I mean, let's think about it. We're getting to a point now, and we've seen it in world history, it's nothing new. It's new for America, but it's nothing new. There's other parts of the world where it's it's been taking place all along. We're getting to a point in America where it's so in control now, because we turn to such, we've turned to humanism, we turn to secularism, we left God out, we have a whole generation that's up there now, selfishness is in control, it's about our lust, it's about what we want. It's getting to the point now, and it's going to lead to this, where your political opponent would just as soon kill you than just have a disagreement. Where people literally walking in and shooting their pastor. 
because of a disagreement. Husbands and wives, just, just amazing. Hatred is strong. When, I, when we went through the book of Hosea, we saw how Hosea's wife was certainly controlled by lust, living for pleasure. But the Lord had directed his marriage there. He was going to use Hosea's life as a personal illustration. Those first couple of chapters are incredible what takes place. But what we saw in Hosea's wife was she was never content, never happy with her husband, in constant battle with her husband, no doubt thinking the problem in her mind was her husband. But it wasn't. It was the uncontrolled lust in her own heart. That was the problem. And you have to be very, very careful here. Because it gets to a point, we see this in Scripture, it gets to a point where the Lord says, I'm done. I'm going to let you fill your lust. Think of the children of Israel with the manna. We're tired of manna. We want meat. It's God's provision. Miraculous provision. Remember what it says in Psalms gives us a clue as to why there's a danger. Remember I said the war is with your own soul. That's the real battle. And when you get into the book of Psalms, it talks about when God gave them over. It said, fine, take it. It says this, but he sent leanness unto their soul. The most important part, it's who we are, is our soul. The key is not feeding your flesh. Remember, you are a soul. You simply have a body. That's the important part of you. That's the part to protect. It is the key to joy. It is the key to contentment. Your eye will not be satisfied. Your flesh will not be satisfied. Secondly now, he comes to unfulfilled desire. We have the lust of verse 1 here. Now look at number 2. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war. We're going to stop right there. Now he changes gears here, actually. The source of strife is from unfulfilled desire. Now, you have the word lust in verse 1, and then we have the word lust in verse 2. It's two completely different words with completely different meanings. It's not the same word. And so it changes the angle, the principle that we're dealing with now. The first one dealt with pleasure-seeking. That's what that word lust dealt with. Pleasure-seeking. As I said, it's, it's the same Greek word. We get our English word, uh, hedonist, pleasure-seeker. This word is different. This word speaks of covetousness. It speaks of intense desire. Intense evil desire. So he switches gears here. This lust drives you. This lust controls you. So this lust gets in control, this covetousness takes hold of your heart, which which obviously is idolatry, arises when your desire, the strife comes strong, your desire is so in control, yet it's not fulfilled. Notice the wording in the verses we read, have not, cannot obtain, have not. This covetousness is in control, this lust is in control, yet it's not being met. 
You want to see a heart quickly rise in frustration and strife and anger. You allow this to be in control in your life, yet it's never fulfilled and never fulfilled and never fulfilled. Strife arises. And that will lead to great conflict in your life. Even as it says here, it can lead to murder. Fightings, wars. The desire is so strong that when a person's expectations are not met, they will take action to get them met. The spiritual man is not in control. This includes murder. This, I think it has two aspects here. It could be actual killing. I mean, we can think of an, of, of an addict who, who that covetousness to get the next tie, the next drug controls him so much, he's willing to kill to get it. I mean, you, you can think of, of, of spouses who have literally committed murder just to get a life insurance policy. You can think of spouses who have killed their other spouse just to be with somebody else. It certainly leads to murder. But I think it goes beyond that, what he was talking about. I think it speaks of also of destruction in murder. When your desires are not met, how destructive you become in your behavior and in your relationships, you kill them. Your actions, because those unfulfilled desires, lust, this lust is in control, the covetousness is in there, it's not there, and all of a sudden you start killing off your relationships. Anger takes over. We can think in the Sermon on the Mount when Christ dealt with anger, the root sin of murder. Selfishness mixed with covetousness, man, look out. Desires won't be met. Anger will come in. So you have expectations. Whew. And when, when, when the flesh is more in control, and your mind sets up expectations, and let's just put this to relationships. You have different relationships that all of a sudden, based on different circumstances that are taking place, you have established expectations you expect to be met. When those aren't met, whoo-wee. And selfishness and lust is in control? Wow. You will see wars. You will see strife. You will see the killing of relationships. You become almost like a spoiled brat throwing tantrums until you get your way. The fact is, when evil desires in control, this lust that is described here in verse 2, you will constantly make bad decisions with your life. And it will lead you down a road of nothing but strife, conflict, sin. You will get frustrated over and over with life because of unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled expectations, and then you take it out on others. As if it's their fault. They did not meet my expectation. The problem was what was behind your expectation. Selfishness, pride, lust. And I'm not going to go... This gets spin off in so many different ways in our relationships. We turn to so many wicked avenues then to get those expectations met. Manipulation. 
we can go on and on with this. Just leads to strife, conflict, wars. And the biggest war you're facing, the battle, you think it's all in the outward. But it's in your own soul. Thirdly, look at the second part of verse 2 and into chapter 3. This is interesting. I left off with you fight in war. It says, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. He's coming into a third principle now in this verse, as you can see. It's clearly a, a different thought that he's going with, with answering the question from the first part of verse 1. And so this thought deals with this, as you're going to see. This is dealing with a heart that is not at all genuinely seeking God. All right, let me show you that. Now, again, many think these, these, are, these are verses on prayer. You can make an application of prayer out of these verses. I have no problem with that. But the main point of what these verses are driving at is not prayer. It's dealing with the heart of a person and where that heart actually lies. And now it's still coming to a spiritual aspect with how this person that's in this condition tries to approach God. This is teaching about a heart that is far away from God. A heart that is being controlled by one of the two lusts it dealt with in verse 1 and verse 2. How when that happens, it affects our relationships not only with others, but of course our relationship with our Creator. You see, right praying before God, genuine, true praying before God, demonstrates, perhaps clearer than anything else, a heart that's truly seeking God. Matthew 6.33, etc. A right heart will not be concerned with selfish ambition or selfish pleasure. It's a heart that simply wants to please God. That's the desire. So what he's, what he's pointing to here is going to show how this heart, even though it can be masked in spirituality, is actually really far from God. There are so many people who know all the spiritual tricks. They can look spiritual, but boy, their heart is so far from actually God. When it says here, you have not because you ask not, it's not talking about getting the evil desires met in context. That's not it at all. Remember what's behind that. Remember, these are people that are going to the wrong source for satisfaction using the flesh instead of dealing with the soul. And so it, the eye is never satisfied. But what's behind it is a genuine drive that's in all of us to actually find a measure of contentment, a measure of joy. But they're going to the wrong source. So it's not dealing with that aspect. It's dealing with behind those desires. The need for joy. The need for contentment. The need for knowing why you're here. Purpose. Yeah, it's certainly true. If you're not going to ask, you're not going to receive anything. The question to ask is, why are they not asking? 
Because their heart is so far from God, they're not seeking Him. Prayer is a reflection of the health of your Christian life and your walk with God. It's what it is. Strife is the result of a heart that's not genuinely seeking God. And one of the strongest ways this becomes evidence is a failure to pray. Listen, you can think in your own life that there's been times in your life where you've, you, you've had that, that, that closer walk than distance. The first thing that's going to get attacked is your prayer life. That begins to wane. And it's going to be two aspects here. You can still manage to be very far from God and still pray. He's going to deal with that in a second. But this is dealing with the person who's no longer asking. It takes this manifestation. There's no prayer. There's no prayer. They're not going to God to have needs met. The lust is in control. The selfishness is in control. And they're trying that route. And it's causing a war within because they have guilt that is telling them this is wrong. The lust is in control. The war is taking place. And that lust is winning. And there's strife and conflict in their life. And they think it's others. They think it's just a place where I'm at in my life. No, it's your own heart. And the geographical location won't change it. It won't. You go somewhere else, give it six months. The strife and conflict will start arising and start arising. Again, you cannot have a strong prayer life and have lust and control at the same time. It's not possible. Now, another form it takes is those who pray and pray amiss. Pray amiss. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. So these are those who fail to pray properly. First one, they, they weren't praying personally at all. Now they're not praying properly. They still have their prayer life in place, but they're still far from God. They're just as far from God as the group that's not even praying. Just as far from God. <clears throat> These are those whose prayers are basically just bouncing off the ceiling and coming back on top of them. These are those who are actually going to God to get help fulfilling their lust. Think about that. We see two things about this group of people. Number one, they've deceived their own selves. They believe so much that what they are seeking is right. They go to God. Yet it's to consume it upon their own lust. That's a deceived heart. Well, one of the dangerous, and James dealt with that, didn't he? One of the most dangerous places to, to be is when your own heart is deceived. When you're believing your own lie. You're believing your own selfishness. They've deceived themselves. Listen, the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in earth. It's to get God's will done in earth. We think God is our genie in the bottle. He isn't. He's the creator. We're the creation. If they're not deceived, Let's say they're not deceived. Let's say I'm wrong on that. There could be another angle to this. If they're not deceived, then what they're trying to do is this. There's only one other explanation, and that's it. They're trying to live on the fence. They want both worlds. They want to try and pray, but they also want what they want. It's living on the fence. 
trying to live in the world and for God. It's not possible. What is produced is a fake spirituality. They veil their lust in spirituality, as, as it says, they even pray. And their life will be filled with strife because that is the fruit of what's actually controlling the heart. And until that is dealt with, the strife will remain. We can see this in Scripture. Aaron and Miriam complained about Moses' wife. But what was really at the heart of that? Selfishness and pride. Envious of his authority. So they found an angle to take it out on. It was masked in spirituality. How about Judas? Masking his greed with spirituality. Look at his waste. Think of how much we could have given to the poor. He could care less about the poor. He was masking his sin in spirituality. Happens all the time. The Pharisees were masters at it. They were masters at it. And they, they were almost part of both groups, believe it or not. They also had a heart that was deceived. I mean, they were convinced what they were doing was right. It's an awful dangerous place to be when all of a sudden what is in control of you is this fake spirituality that you are using to front as a cover for your own lust and then it can deceive your own heart. And you say, well, what's the evidence of it? That strife within. No contentment. No peace. Because you'll never satisfy the eye. It won't be there. It won't happen. There's a fakeness. To the point you can go to God praying about your own lust. It's getting your eyes back on God. It's getting back to the simplicity that is in Christ, not just in salvation, but in our walk. Of realizing, you know what? Life is genuinely, truly all about Him. It's not about ministry. It's not about your career. It's not about retirement. It's not about your name. Life is all about God. It's all about Him. We had three things here that led to much strife in our life. That uncontrolled lust, the pleasure-seeking. Then where the second lust, where covetousness is in control, that intense desire. And then thirdly, that heart that's not at all seeking God. Those things will lead to constant strife in your life. Selfishness and pride will be the, the, that ammunition, the explosiveness behind it that's in control. It'll lead to the fightings and wars. So the answer is, is to use the mirror, as James already said, by the way, and look within. Listen to me. The problem isn't the others. It's in your own heart. It's going before God and say, God, what do I need? God, help me. 
set aside ambition. Listen, that, that was promoted in our circles. And you know how dangerous ambition can be. Lord, please, I need my life to be all about you. Do you know the Lord understands the struggles we're in as we try and serve him through the sinful flesh? He does. He understands. You think he's willing to help? Of course he is. I mean, go back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. He gave us his own son. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Of course he does. And now, maybe the greatest need you have now, now look at this, you need to think about this. Maybe you've never genuinely been converted. I want you to think about this. If you were to die right now, where would you go? Don't miss this. One day you will die. The Bible says this is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Death will find you one day. And after that day, there'll come a time when you stand before your Creator and He will judge you. It will happen. This isn't rocket science. Listen to me here. We're not just going to run through a little... You know, our culture has changed. We think we can just run through Romans 3, 10, 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, Romans 10, and we're done. We have a culture that has no concept of a creator right now. You're going to die and stand before your creator. That's what's going to happen. It doesn't matter if you believe me or not. That's going to take place. And when he judges you, we already know from his word what he's going to use. He's going to use his law. He's going to judge your life. That's what he's going to do. He's going to judge your life based on his law. And guess what? You broke it, just like I have. For all have sinned. You've broken his law. God's not going to look at you and say, you know, but basically you're a pretty good guy. You're a pretty good guy. You know what? You and I had our own thing worked out. It's okay. You prayed. You tried to pray almost every day. I know that. You've been deceived. You will stand before a holy and a righteous God. Now get this. His two most prominent attributes in Scripture of the Creator. Number one is holiness. Number two is justice. You're going to stand before that holy and righteous God. He's going to show you every time you have broken His law, you you won't even have one word to say. Nothing. He's simply going to show you why you're guilty. Here's the problem. According to Revelation chapter 20, which is the clearest picture we have of what's going to take place at Judgment Day, 100% of those people found guilty at Judgment Day are cast into a lake of fire. Do you understand that was never even created for us? People like just to deny it today. Just insane. That's a very real place. It was never created for us. But if you are found guilty at judgment, that is where you will be for an eternity. That's not a game. You see, something has to take place where you look perfect. That's God's requirement. Did you know that? It's not that your good works out where your bad works. It's not that that water is somehow washed away sin. Not at all. The water of anchors can't take away your sin. I have news for you. Never going to happen. Nope. That's a picture of what should have already happened. So when you stand before God, somehow it has to look as if you have never sinned one time ever. So how in the world is that going to take place? Get this. This is where the third attribute of God comes in that's mentioned the most in Scripture. His love. 
God knew what had to take place. He knew. They're guilty, but I am holy and I'm just. God will not set aside His holiness. He will not set aside His justice. He had to find some way to get His holiness, His justice, and His love to meet. And the vehicle to let that happen is His grace. So what God did, amazing, think about it. It's incredible. God becomes a man. 2,000 years ago, God became a man. Jesus Christ. He lived on this earth the perfect life. He is the only one who's ever lived on this earth as a man that can go to the judgment day and the Father can say, you're innocent. He's it. No one else. There's not another person who has ever lived on this earth that could stand at that judgment day and God the Father can say, you're innocent. The only one who's ever lived the perfect life is Jesus Christ. Now get this, this is where it gets really good. He lived that perfect life for you. Did you know that? You've heard the term that Christ died for you. It's amazing what is, in, is encompassed in that, which, what, what, what that means. It is true, Christ died for you. See, well, I don't get, how's the guy who died 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me right now? Get this. When he went to the cross, I want you to listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's speaking what happened on the cross. It says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us. God the Father hath made the Son sin for us. Who knew no sin? He was perfect. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when I say, what I'm telling you is, you're going to stand before God, he's going to judge you, you are guilty, but what God did to save you from that judgment is he himself became a man, lived the perfect life. Then when he went to that cross, this is what God ordained before the foundation of the world. He knew this would take place in order to save you. The Father placed upon his Son all of our sin. Everything, every sin you've committed against him or will commit was on his Son. And God judged him in your place. Think what that means. His life satisfied holiness. His death satisfied justice. When the Lord cried out, it is finished. It was enough. It satisfied justice for the sins of mankind. So, he takes your sin, but the verse doesn't finish there, does it? It says he gives you his righteousness. Think about that. You have your, here's, here's the book that's going to be open. The Revelation says there's going to have the book open. One of those books is going to have your name on it. And here's, underneath that is every sin you've ever committed. You're going to see that and you know, you're going to know I have no hope. I'm guilty. But you have another book over here. Christ's name is up top. Underneath his name is all of his righteousness. He's perfect. There's no sin. There's no sin. When I say that Christ died for you, what I mean is this, is you can take your name, place it over here. You can take Christ's name and place it over here. Look what happens then. Here's your name now. Underneath your name is no sin. You look perfect. We call that the doctrine of justification. Now look at Christ's name. What's underneath his name? All of your wickedness. All of your sin. 
And guess what happened to him? He was judged for it. But he wasn't just a man, was he? He is God. And after three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again from the dead. You're not God. You die and go to hell, you're not coming out. Jared is sitting right there. Jared, remember, was that back in May, April time frame, when you put your faith in Christ? We were down talking at the table after service. I remember going over this with Jared, and it clicked. He got it. Jared dropped right to his knee at the side of that table, repented, and placed his faith in Christ. Once you see what Christ did for you, there's two key things, repentance and faith. Let me finish with this. It's demonstrated when Christ died on the cross by the two men who were there with him. Listen, don't miss this. Listen, we have today. We, we, we got, we got uh, we, we, times we generally miss what the gospel is about. The three men are all dying. Three men are hours away from death. That's it. The first thief speaks up. If thou be the Christ, get us down from here. Christ never speaks to that man. He never acknowledges him. The other thief speaks up, though. But listen to what he says. He tells that other thief, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. This man hath done nothing wrong. And this is all he did. He looks at the Lord and says, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. The Lord turned to him and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now what saved that man was not a couple of simple words like we tend to believe. That's not it. What this man knew was this. Notice, he never asked to come down from the cross. He never asked to be saved from a circumstance he was in. He understood he was guilty. What he was afraid of was judgment to come. He wasn't saying something out of an obligation of somebody who was talking to him at the moment. He knew, I'm going to be judged of the Creator, and I'm guilty. I deserve to be here. I know who I am. And all he did was repent and place his faith, turning from whatever else he was trusting in. I don't know what it was in his life, don't know. But whatever it was, I know he wasn't trusting in it anymore. I know he saw the wickedness of his own sin. And he put his faith in the only one who could save him. Jesus Christ. And the moment he did that, he was saved. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is at that moment. With heads bowed and eyes closed.